Welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, a celebration of the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. Today we discuss the third and final section of The Violet Barren Away by Flannery O'Connor. The novel concludes with a shocking act of sexual violence against young Tarwater, which propels him back to his home at Powderhead and back to the grave of old Tarwater. Here, at last, he hears the voice of God speak within him, and he accepts his destiny as a prophet of the Lord. The last we see of Tarwater is as he makes his way once again toward the dark city where the children of God lay sleeping. Why was such an act required for Tarwater to accept his fate? Is this book realistic, or is it more like a fable or one of Christ's parables? What kind of relationship to the world does this novel have? A sick, fallen place awaiting redemption from beyond? What kind of God, then, is revealed at the end, who chooses the Tarwaters to have the prophetic blood? The God of the Enlightenment? The God of the Philosophers? A friendly New Testament God? The frightening God of the Desert Fathers? What kind of God could speak to us in the 20th century? What kind of divine voice could we hear? And now, here's Elijah with the opening question. This is Elijah with the opening question on the last part of The Violent Bear It Away. I think we obviously need to think about the end of the book and this sort of final revelation. Um, and I want to think about what sort of prophet Tarwater will become. Uh, what do we think? But I actually want to start on page 60. There's a scene where Mason Tarwater, the great uncle is speaking and we have a sort of picture of him as a prophet Um, and I sort of want to compare that with a later moment in the book so on page 60 Raber's house way back when Tarwater was a boy um, and Mason is recounting this so he'd say while he was telling this to Tarwater he would jump up and begin to shout and prophesy there in the clearing the same way he had done in front of her door this is actually his sister's door not Raber's With no one to hear but the boy, he would flail his arms and roar. Ignore the Lord Jesus as long as you can. Spit out the bread of life and sicken on honey. Whom work beckons to work, whom blood to blood, whom lust to lust. Make haste, make haste, fly faster and faster. Spin yourselves in a frenzy. The time is short. The Lord is preparing a prophet. The Lord is preparing a prophet with fire in his hand and eye. And the prophet is moving toward the city with his warning. The prophet is is coming with the Lord's message. Go warn the children of God, saith the Lord, of the terrible speed of justice. Who will be left when the Lord's mercy strikes? I thought this passage was interesting, right? Because when God ostensibly finally speaks at the end of the book, uh, the message is almost the same, except the word justice is replaced with mercy, right? Go go warn the children of God of the terrible speed of mercy. Um, so I guess my question is twofold. Is Tarwater... Is Tarwater going to be the same sort of prophet as Mason Tarwater is, or is he somehow different? And then basically, what do we make of the end and his, I guess, vocation or his, what would be the word, his election as a prophet? And uh, I think at some point we'll want to read through the last couple of pages closely, but I think that's kind of where I want to end up today. But maybe we should just start, what did you make of this rapid development in the last part of the book, right? So he gets violated by the stranger the stranger character and then he sets the woods on fire and then he has sort of this vision just generally what you guys make of this last several scenes <laughs> it's uh it's really hard to know what to say about them i think i mean i 
So this is the second time I've read this book in the last couple of months. And I felt, even though I knew what was going to happen in the end, I felt actually more destabilized and like more turned or turned around by the events of the, the last part and the outcome. And I like uncertain what the outcome was supposed to even to be or make me think or feel, you know, I, so so there's a, a way in which it seems like the drowning slash baptism of bishop that ends part two brings the stranger slash friend into like existence in the physical world right which either that moves the book into a kind of realm of fantasy or something like almost like a science fiction realm that I, I find it really hard to I uh, just understand the meaning of, or or there's a way in which it just like breaks Tarwater's brain to do that, and which moves the, the the novel into more of like a psychological realism, which I also doesn't think quite works, or <laughs> or it's just a straightforward accounting of like a very hungry, very tired very lonely boy being raped by a creepy predator on the side of the road. And that also seems like meaningless in a way that I don't know how to interpret in the moral message of either. So yeah, those seem like the three major possibilities to me. And I just feel like at the end of the book, what I think about that event really determines how I'm going to feel about the prophecy, like the, the fact that he becomes a prophet and what he's going to do in the city and I just don't know how to think about it. Yeah. I don't know how to answer your question. <laughs> in summation, I don't know how to answer your question. <laughs> uh, but I will, I definitely would say that reading it carefully a second time did not clarify the meaning or the moral message of the book for me. Elijah, are you asking about the, can you restate your question? Well, my question simply is, what are we to make of the end of the book? And I pointed to this earlier time where Mason Tarwater says the Lord warns about the terrible speed of justice, but then the last lines of the book are go warn the children of God of the terrible speed of mercy, which is this really enigmatic, difficult to understand comment. And so I was, I was noting, right, the striking replacement of the word justice with mercy. And it kind of, I actually agree with that. I, I like this book. I've read it a couple times now. I think it's really interesting. I think she's a good writer. I don't know what to make at the end of it. And so I'm sort of suggesting that maybe trying to think about this enigmatic final phrase, the terrible speed of mercy might help us think about the book. But really my question is, what do we make of the end? That's it. How, whatever entry we can make into there, it's short enough that we're going to be able to cr crisscross everything several times in the next hour. Right. So this is going to be a very general comment, but I was thinking about your question from last time about freedom. And it seems to me like the message of the end, at least part of it, this is not meant to be a comprehensive comment, but is that in the end, God will make it right. You have all these terrible things that happen. You get tar water. He goes through these terrible things. He does terrible things, drowns a boy, ends up baptizing him. He feels remorse about that in some weird way. But at the end, God calls him and makes all of these terrible things happen for a reason. 
And it just seems, it feels very, very deterministic. Like at the end of the day, God's will will be done. And, and I think that's part of what that, the terrible um, speed of mercy is getting at is God redeems even all of these terrible acts. Yeah. I'll just Mm -hmm. stop there, but that was, that was kind of my general thought on, on how the book ends. And would you, that's, I think that's interesting and, and, good stuff to think about would you include the moment when raver realizes realizes that he feels nothing at the death of the bishop and collapse collapses is that a moment of terrible mercy as well i don't know i didn't yeah. i wasn't thinking about it that way that's for sure to me this is a story of Tarwater's redemption and raver plays a part in that certainly but ultimately he's not the concern of the text the concern is Tarwater. If, if 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 Raber had been like the focus of the narrative, I could see how he might go on after that moment and be redeemed in another way. But I that doesn't feel like a redemptive moment to me. If anything, that's just like him coming to face with the immorality of his soul or something like that. I don't know. I think Paul, you're you're talking about free will and determination in a different way than the text takes up the question or like maybe that would put it as like it feels like the world is determined the freedom is only meaningful to the extent that it's choosing god or not and so like yeah the world is redeemed uh and there's no freedom in it but that's because it only is for those who take it take it up or take up god's presence and th- and there is no redemption without it and I think that is why she includes the scene with the rape. Like while Tarwater is in this ambiguous space, right? The world is utterly irredeemable. And it's upon his, it's a weird choice, but it's, a, I, guess, I guess it's a choice nonetheless to take up God's will that, that the world is aflame with meaning rather than meaninglessness. Or something does does Tarwater ever choose though i i because i i'm i'm sympathetic to what you're saying greg but mm-hmm. it seems like there's an imposition on him like i the word choice and maybe i'm just quibbling but i don't i don't see choice here and maybe i'm just wrong well i know I, I mean i think it's a good question i have a couple thoughts about that one is i think thinking about what this book is trying to do Um, I do think O'Connor takes issue with sort of the modern liberalism's obsession with autonomy and what she's up. One thing she's up to in this book is to sort of puncture what she would see as a myth of autonomy, right? All the characters are seeking autonomy and they can't remember from the very beginning of the book, the stranger says, right? The choice isn't between Jesus and the devil. It's between Jesus and you. And of course the, the book, you know, narratively argues that that's not the case, right? If you choose yourself you're actually choosing the devil which is you you're, you're becoming subservient right in this really horrible way that literally happens to tarwater right he, he's fed on by the devil which is interesting too to think about since the bread of life is such an interesting important part of this book so that's my first point is i do think autonomy is really important and how that interacts with determinism isn't something i totally have clear in my mind but i think we can think about that the other thing i do think at least one moment of choice is the moment when he when Tarwater puts a flame between him and the stranger, right? Severing that mentorship. I think that's a moment of choice. And I think without that moment, 
the rest of it didn't have to shake out the way that it did if he hadn't severed that union. So is part of the meaning of being a prophet then that these metaphysical conflicts are happen to you in a much more literal sense than they do to other people? I mean, one question I think that we could ask is why, if the will of God is being done at the end and tar water becomes the instrument of the will of God, as he's always Mm -hmm. been meant to be like, why does the will, why is the will of God so violent and inscrutable? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, obscure and obscene, you know, Uh well, a couple or sorry, go ahead, Adam. No, I was just trying to think about, I mean, if the, the ultimate choice is that you, you have to serve Jesus or Satan, right? And when you think you're choosing for yourself, you're actually choosing Satan and you're choosing to be Satan's, you know, yeah, Satan's vessel or the vessel for Satan's will. And then for tar water, it's not a, it's not something abstract, right? It's not something spiritual. It's something like very, you know, very literal, right? I mean, isn't that the, the setup of the world that the, because the world is so, it's not that the world's evil, but the world is like ridden with, ridden with evil or something like the world, the world is, is in some ways like Satan's domain or the person who exhibits mastery in the world is, I mean, I can't really answer the question that follows next, but it seems like something like the world is ridden with Satan's domain, right? All the machines, the things that exhibit power of the world, cars, especially, belong to satan so to be in the world is to be satan ridden so of course we people encounter god's vision as violent right he literally just burns mm-hmm. burns and burns and burns because that's the condition of of the freedom from the violence from you because know, you're tearing yourself out of all the machines in the world Well, so I think, Greg, I think that's right. And I think a couple of sessions ago, I was trying to talk about like how her God almost seems like the Greek fates or some or Greek fate or something. And I think really what I was trying to get at is the otherness of God is such in this text that, I mean, God is so other that, right, his, his, what is merciful is experienced as violence, right? And we, you, you, the reader or Tarwater can maybe have like a little glimpse of like, oh, I can see what's merciful about this, <laughs> even though it's so awful in so many ways. But the other way I want to temper what you were saying a little bit, Greg, is that, right, so when he's in the truck, right, it, the truck is sort of figured as the, the belly of the whale that Jonah's in, right? The key moment in the Jonah story, so I think I might have said this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's worth saying here again, right? So Jonah gets sent to the non-Israelites, right, the Ninevites, right, their historical enemies, he doesn't want to go. He ends up going there and um, he's basically ticked off that God decided to save the city. And God says to Jonah something like, why should I not save the city? There are 120 souls and 4,000 cattle beside, right? It's like this really bizarre moment in the Hebrew scripture where God is, is saying to the prophet, I care about your enemies. I care about them more than you do. And I'm going to try to rescue them. Right. And if, so now keeping that in mind, right, if we go back to Mason Tarwater, right, he was always sort of preaching against the city and how wicked it is. And Tarwater inherits that from him. But then at the very end of the book, right, he turns his nose to the city where the children of God were sleeping. Right. So he's going back to the city. He's certainly going to be persecuted there. Right. He's certainly going to be misunderstood. Right. 
But whatever the meaning of his vocation is, it doesn't send him away from the corrupt city. It sends him back towards it, which is totally in line with the Jonah story, right? This The otherness of God, right, whatever it is, actually, I think the text implies cares more about the city than the Jonah prophet does, who's got this sort of narrow parochial xenophobic attitude towards the city for most of the book. If all of this is contingent on accepting tar water as a type of Jonah, though, which I think I can justify text, textually. I think it's and, right. And, and so much, so much of it's so important that he turns back to the city where the children of God were sleeping, right? That's a radical reversal of the way he's seen the city all throughout. I'll shut up now. No, 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 don't. Because so there's something with that with like, it seems like the prophet's major weakness is that he actually fails to believe in the strength of God, right? So the reason that prophets are parochial or xenophobic is they distrust the world because it it is filled with Satan. And so they want the purity of, of some kind of experience absent the world. And it seems like that long, dark night of the prophet is encountering, or like the reason prophets encounter the strength of God via the long, dark night or something is that it helps them banish the prejudice against the world, which they have a God established duty to reach to. And that, you know, enforces God's powers. I mean, like realistically it's, it's Plato's cave, right? It's like Mm -hmm. very similar paradox. You know, the prophets exposed to this one sense of purity, they rise up, they get Mm -hmm. cleansed and then they, they are led all the way back down. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to think about the. I'm trying to think about the will of God as it appears in the Bible and as it appears in this book. That's too. That's a too broad of a topic. <laughs> it just seems like the will of God is just mercy, though. Is it anything else? Well, one thing that Adam was getting at before. It seems the way the events play out with the drowning and the rape it makes this will of God inscrutable to us. We have this sort of cognitive dissonance between these awful things happening. One of the awful things perpetrated by this now, this new prophet heading toward the city. Yeah. I mean, we sort of have been asking this question in different ways, but I mean, again, it's really hard to see mercy in what becomes of this family their history and the life of bishop and the life of tarwater unless the will of god and the mercy of god is interacting with human freedom and and human freedom is a very powerful force in the world but then we also struggle to see human freedom right in the book Uh, unless the human will is very powerful right more powerful than maybe it seems to be I mean, again, I feel like I've, I brought this up. We kind of talked about this last week and you just end up with, in the same. We're always going to end up in this like theological paradox, right? Yeah. But Well, if we think about... It's really dramatized in a very dramatic way here because it's like things that happen to these people are really terrible, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And and they're terrible and, and they're presented as, in some sense, will by the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, and that's just, it's just hard to understand that, I guess. Right, so... So I think this book is deeply committed to representing theological truths, right? And so I would say it seems like, you know, to put it simply, God 
offers mercy. It's the only thing he wants. Human will is the only thing that's as strong as God, but only has power over one entity, the human who wills it. And so that each person's, so, so what we encounter is this world where humans have this like unique ability to destroy themselves, right? But I think we can't consider any violence done to a human as wrong or something, right? Like the, the ill fate that befalls the Tarwater family is not, I'm sure how to put this, but, but, but something like it's, it's not that it's not merciful. It's that if you think mercy is having a good life or something like that, then you're very confused about what, Mm. what that means. Yeah, no, I, I think, yeah, that's right. Well, sorry, go ahead, Adam. No, no, you, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think, well, so we, we do get a little taste of the content. I have a couple thoughts. We get a little taste of the content because the only community in the book, right? There's really the only community are the Buford, Buford Munson and his wife, right? Who are these sort of angelic characters. And then Tarwater has this vision, right? And all throughout the book, he's thinking of his hunger for the bread of life as like a solitary thing. But at the end, he has this vision of everybody sitting on the hillside, right? Eating the loaves and fishes as they're being multiplied, Right. And really, like, what does Tarwater gain over all this? Or what does he gain over the whole narrative? Right. Is that his aversion to com- to community seems to be partially healed or something like that's really it. Right. And that's why I was sort of saying that this whole book is is sort of questioning autonomy and this ideology or dogma of autonomy. Right. Where does he end up? He ends up in a place where he is right sharing a meal, which is, of course, supposed to symbolize communion, but he's sharing it with others. Right. He's actually in, even if it's just this fragmentary moment, there's this vision of community and that, right. The mercy we could say then, right. Something like the mercy of God in this book, right. Creates some kind of community, something like that. But the second thing I'd say is that I'm thinking about biblical analogs. And if we think about something like the story of Joseph, right. Joseph's father is Israel. He marries these two sisters, right. And he treats them differently because he's in love with one and doesn't love the other. They have 12 kids, right? These kids are all at each other's throats because particularly uh, Joseph and Benjamin, right? Because they're favored by their father because he loves their mother more. And then we could think about the whole Joseph story, right? He gets sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt. He gets thrown in jail for, he's accused of raping Potiphar's wife. He gets thrown in jail. He becomes the king. His brothers come. He plays all these elaborate tricks, right? And then finally, after this long, it's a really long narrative for the Bible, right? It's 12 chapters or something, 14 chapters in Genesis, right? The brothers are reconciled. And uh, the famous line of Joseph, right? Which you meant for evil, God used for good, because the brothers were the ones that originally sell them into slavery. And one way of reading that story, right, is that at the very beginning, you have this dysfunctional family. And instead of God just directly intervening, he sort of indirectly uses all of these different mechanisms, right? This really elaborate scheme, right? And so that at the end, the brothers can be reconciled and love each other and the family can be one again. But it takes years and years, right? He's in jail for like three years in that book for something he didn't do in the Genesis narrative. And so there's something like, there's something like in that narrative, right? God doesn't ever overcome the wills of the brothers who hate Joseph, but he does orchestrate it in such a way that they come to this place where they sort of have to reconcile but it's also somehow free. Mm. And so I think about the violent bear it away and it's like, man, 
all of this. I mean, it's really, it's over five days, I think the narrative or six days, right? But God does all of this to bring Tarwater to a place where he no longer has the aversion to community that he once had, right? That he, that he's gotten rid of this like poisoned idea of autonomy and God uses all of this extreme violence and these like outrageous antics, mm-hmm. right? To, to, to woo Tarwater's will. I'm not sure if I buy that reading. I'm just, you know, spinning something out a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's a very, um, it's a very old Testament kind of God, right? It's like when you are in Sunday school, they tell you that, because you kind of, I mean, you kind of ask these questions, right? When you get to be like 12 or 13 years old and you're being raised in a, in the church, you know, at least I did. And one of the sort of pat responses is that this is the old Testament God you're asking about. And then, you know, there's the Old Testament God, and then after Jesus came, there's the new, a new kind of God. God is a new kind of God, or God has a new covenant with, right, the new covenant with his people. And um, and the will of God can be understood in some, some way. It's not so inscrutable. It's not so violent. It's not just for the Jews. You know, it's for everyone. And uh makes me feel like O'Connor is linking the new covenant reading of God, of the Old Testament, the New Testament, to to humanism and the enlightenment right and trying to present kind of god a god that is not the god of the enlightenment and not the god of the philosophers but is a an older fierier (laughs) more merciful but also more violent and more mysterious god there's a lot of talk about shadows and mysteries and yeah caverns and caves and things like that especially towards the end I don't know. That's just a thought, but I was, yeah, I feel like the the kind of God you're describing harkens back to a, an older kind of God, a pre a pre modern kind of God, right? When like innocent children suffer, it's you know what I mean. It's like that's it seems to me to be as stark as the point can be put to the reader. And maybe she had you know she had the Holocaust on her mind. Uh, maybe she felt like she couldn't avoid. I mean, and, and temperamentally, she just has an imagination of extremes, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah I'm sure she's thinking of the extreme you know, test case. again, like yeah. we discussed before. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention before I forgot, sort of interestingly, right? Raber. So when Raber hears him go off, he feels that the boy is going off to a final revelation, right? And so Raber actually ends up being a true prophet, right? Which is a funny sort of inversion as well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? He prophesies correctly about about Tarwater's fate, which again, I don't. I we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I think uh, she has a lot of sympathy for Raber in a certain sense, or is doing something more complicated than I've quite grasped with him. What? Uh, I guess let's, maybe we can try to focus something more specific, since there's a lot of there's a lot of grand uh, theorizing on all of our parts. But what did you, did anyone have a sense of the? So alcohol is kind of a, is a, is a sort of elite motif throughout. And the object that Ray Bear gives to Tarwater is the corkscrew, which Tarwater uses to open the liquor bottle in the car. And then the stranger slash the friend slash Satan slash the rapist who picks him up takes the his hat. I'll say Want to talk mm-hmm. about hats? His hat and the corkscrew as a souvenir. Do you just think that that's just a way to draw, like, make obvious that there's an association being made between drunkenness and the devil, or there's something else going on there? It's also got to do with uh, his, his thirst, right? 
Mm-hmm. He is constantly talking about how he's thirsty and then hungry and then thirsty. And he tries to quench that two different times with alcohol. But yeah, I think it's definitely associated with the devil. The devil's kind of t- the devil's way of quenching one's thirst. Uh-huh. There's something very like old, old South about that. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Alex. I kind of cut you off. What the, you uh, yeah. The uh, corkscrew. I remember in the text, we talked about Tarwater walking away with a corkscrew in hand, and he decided he would he would keep the corkscrew as his talisman. And the mm-hmm. word the word talisman stuck out to me. So that's like his holy symbol or his priestly symbol. Yeah, I think I think it has to be that alcohol is aligned with Satan. If you just imagine how much suffering and violence alcohol really embodies in this world like i think we live in a very maybe the average person has a lot more trivial relationship with alcohol than things were in o'connor's time to generalize grossly but i mean if if you think that something like the reduction of your agency is a is an apocalyptic event for for your condition then it would make sense to join that so readily to Satan. Yeah. So it's just an example of irony that Tar that Ray Bear is the one who gives him the gift for no particular reason. He just thinks it would it's like a nifty gadget that would impress him. Well no, I think it's it's his for very specific reasons, right? So Ray Bear is too obsessed with self-control to imbibe. That's not his type of yep. evil, but he loves machines and the trinkets right so it's it's like this dual thing because it's the mechanism of consuming alcohol plus the alcohol itself right whereas whereas before the story kind of splits right so you've got the prophet with a still in the woods who's off doing his own thing and he's corrupted from that and then you have this modern machine evil and the the combination of both in one implement and like what you know, what the hell do you actually need a corkscrew for, right? It's to open hundreds of, of bottles of alcohol. Well, I mean, you need to open bottles of wine. Hundreds of bottles of wine. <laughs> okay. So I thought it was also kind of fun too, because like the corkscrew is like the potential for consuming alcohol in the same way, like Raber thinks about doing things whereas <laughs> tar water tar water is the one yeah. who actually takes it and does it as yeah, he says over right. and over he and over again. says uh, yeah I'm, i don't just talk i can act that's yeah right. i think you can see really how the difference in time she spent in the ray bear sections versus the final chapters like like i don't mean this to be a criticism of style or something but it but in the earlier half of the novel, it seems like she's interested artistically with the rendering of two characters in their conflict, which nowadays is recognized as a much more like successful artistic medium. Um, and I think that's l- like legitimately harder to do in the sense that to enact the character of a human being is more difficult than it is to enact something akin to revelation just because revelation by its very nature is immediate 
this last bit definitely reads like a fever dream compared to the the ray bear sections yeah and the ray bear sections are so closely constructed right it's obsessive mm -hmm. it's, it's very obsessive writing yeah yeah you don't see this as being obsessively written no this feels like this is, it feels like the way Nietzsche writes is just banged out and then she's done with it, just hammered out. You know, she, she, she's like, she's like dancing on something rather than, than having to like comb over it. I was really interested. There were a couple of, of little details I thought that were strange. So can I, I'm just going to make a general comment before you take us to a detail. Yeah, yeah, Adam. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think Greg, the reason, one reason this last part feels the way it feels is that, she has been so careful in imbuing everything with meaning that at this point we're really, we're carried forward by the meaning she's imbued with things, right? Like she was so attentive to the sun all throughout. And it really does feel like now the sun is like pushing the narrative forward. It's like tumbling forward so fast. And it's because she's so, again, I struggled last week with the words for it, but she's so sort of thoughtful with her symbolism and how she it's not symbolism. She imbues the material world with meaning, right, through how she writes about it. And uh, you really feel that momentum pick up and pull you forward in a really, I think, like thrilling way to read or thrilling sort of last chapter, last two chapters. But you, so it, It's like a saturation. That's what I was looking for. There's just all of the sort of things she set in mo motion just feel like so saturated that it's like, yeah, overwhelming sort of aesthetically or symbolically for lack of a better word. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Actually. What are you thinking of, Adam, particularly? Well, I was thinking of when he swears and with um, the woman in the in the store. And so on two twenty six he after he's he's sworn at her uh, so in 225, he, he's, he says, his soul plunged deep within itself to hear the voice of his mentor at its most profound depths. He opened his mouth to overwhelm the woman and to his horror, what rushed from his lips like the shriek of a bat was an obscenity he had overheard once at a fair. Shocked, he saw a moment lost. And then on 226, in the middle paragraph, he was intolerant of unspiritual evils and with those of the flesh he had never trucked. He had never truckled. I've never heard that word before, truckled. He had never truckled. He felt his victory sullied by the remark that had come from his mouth. <laughs> so I just thought it was interesting that he, uh, he is, the line he's intolerant of spiritual evils was, was an interesting line to me. So there's, he's, he's living in this very, at this very high pitch, uh, you know, and then I think that the speed and the saturation of the narrative at the end reflects that, that pitch, you know. He's like, he's really thinking of the world as a plane of spiritual warfare. And the writing like reflects that in some way. But then I also thought when, after he's drank the whiskey and uh, this is the top of 231, after a few minutes, the stranger reached over and pushed his shoulder, pushed Tarwater's shoulder, but he didn't, but he did not stir. The man then began to drive faster. He drove about five miles speeding. And before he espied a turn off into the dirt road, he took the turn and raced along for a mile or two, and then he pulled the car off to the side of the road and drove down the secluded declivity near the edge of the woods. He was breathing rapidly and sweating. That line also really stuck out to me that he the, he was breathing rapidly and sweating because it 
it's a very it's very physical in a way that a lot of the writing in this section is not if you understand what i mean it's like you sort of feel like you're being pulled along yeah by a saturated meaning in a world of spiritual warfare and then then they're all of a sudden reminded that there these people are still going about with bodies you know and he's struggling to do this thing and he's like breathing fast and he's sweating and he's nervous and there's a very like jerk back to a kind of physical world that comes with that i think and that seems to be the last moment of that afterwards when tarwater finally gets back to powderhead and yeah burns the stranger out of his soul you really seem to be in a world of pure symbol almost at that point well and there's like these weird i don't like have no idea what to make of this right in the next page right his clothes are neatly piled only his shoes are on him but then when he drowns tarwater it's reverse he'd only taken off his shoes and and all of his clothes were still on him and so these these two events are somehow inversions but i'm like i don't know quite know what to make of it but anyway that's sort of aside from what you're saying right keeps his hat on also and then the stranger takes the hat mm-hmm. yeah. as a souvenir yeah which the hat i mean the hat in a way right is his identity as a preacher and the hat was the concern way back when he was in the city and it fell off and so in, i mean in some way like again sort of going back to the jonah motif i think god is stripping tar water sort of his tar water of his sort of cultural faith in some way right this is like yeah, his his cultural expression of Christianity is taken away, including the hatred for the city and yeah. certain ways of thinking and being are just like, yeah, burned away in the harshest way possible, almost. Uh, right. And I so the hat descri- he's described twice as hatless after that as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hats are also, hatless. yeah, just I don't I don't want to get too much into gender stuff, but hats are like a key aspect of male culture at the time um and i feel like that's definitely going to be tied to some kind of like masculine virility virility that he's i think this is why he gets raped too or something like it doesn't yeah i I really don't want to go down the road too far because i think that could get absurd quickly but there's something about like he loses his masculine ideal and his masculine that's been held out through this novel entirely you know, and he's now a less so character. It's also he's losing his protection from the sun, right? And it's like the sun is like a symbol for God. Oh, that's good, Paul. That's right. Yeah, I was thinking it was like a, it was like a like a shield or something. Should we read through like the last like page and a half or two pages together as a sort of to move towards a wrap up? I feel like uh, that might help. Because the last page and a half is the sort of vision that I thought was interesting. And I think we should think about starting like 241. So Buford Munson says, it's owing to me that uh, your uncle is buried. I've, I've plowed the corn. I put the cross up. I'll just sort of read. And then whenever you guys want to comment, jump in or I'll stop at the end of each paragraph. Uh, the Negro sat, and this is Buford. The Negro sat watching his strange, spent face and grew uneasy. The skin across it tightened as he watched, and the eyes lifting beyond the grave appeared to see something coming in the distance. Buford turned his head. The darkening field beyond him stretched downward toward the woods. When he looked again, the boy's vision seemed to pierce the very air. 
The Negro trembled and felt suddenly a pressure on him too great to bear. He sensed it as a burning in the atmosphere. His nostrils twitched. He muttered something and turned the mule around and moved off across the back field and down to the woods. One thing that really made that, again, this part seem like you were in the world of like pure symbolism is that Buford doesn't even notice that the, there's this giant fire. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't seem like that fire is real. Then, right. right. Yeah. yeah. And he senses that tar waters and trans or something burning but... in the air, but he doesn't you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he would be probably be upset if, like, the forest around his living, it would right. be fire. <laughs> like, at least he, yeah, he just, he plowed these cornfields, and now they're about to get consumed by fire. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's a good observation. The boy remained standing there, his eyes, his still eyes reflecting the field the Negro had crossed. It seemed to him no longer empty, right? It seemed to him no longer empty, but peopled with a multitude. Everywhere he saw dim figures seated on the slope, and as he gazed, he saw that from a single basket the throng was being fed. This is, of course, like Jesus feeding the 5,000, Matthew, I think. His eyes searched the crowd for a long time as if he could not find the one he was looking for. Then he saw him. The old man was lowering himself to the ground. When he was down and his bulk had settled, he leaned forward, his face turned toward the basket, impatiently following its progress toward him. The boy, too, leaned forward, aware at last of the object of his hunger aware that it was the same as the old man's hunger and that nothing on earth would fill him. His hunger was so great that he could have eaten all the loaves and fishes after they were multiplied. And this is interesting because it is a spiritual vision, but there is a sort of like a minute description of what the uncle's doing. You can like picture it in a real way, even though it's not clearly not physical. But I mean, it is in a certain way, right? Like I think he literally is sick like he can't eat the sandwich the guy gives him yeah and it's like his he's so spiritually corrupted at this point that it's in infecting his affecting his bodily capacity to do anything um and i think that's again like flannery o'connor kind of i don't know if she's blurring the lines between the spiritual and the material but she's at least complicating the relationship between them right no, I think that's right. And, and right, the Eucharist is at the center of this. And I said before, right, for the Catholic, the Eucharist is not a symbol. It's the accidents are bread, but essentially it's the body of Christ, right? That's how they get around that. But it's it's not a symbol. It's it's spirit and matter and hearing in each in each other in some, you know, very difficult to understand sort of way. And I think that's I think that's right, Paul. Or that's what I think of when I hear you say that. And I think that's right. I also He's, wonder if there's a a uh, way in which this is again uh, seems to be intermixing a kind of Greek or pagan afterlife with a Christian one, right? Because you're seeing visions of your ancestors in this sort of ethereal plane or something. Right? There's a kind of a there's an underworld or a Hades quality to this. I don't know if that goes along with my thesis from before that this is a this is a more Old Testament God in order to like counteract the corruption of the enlightenment. Yeah. What I think both with profit as presented in this book and well, virtually everything in this book, it's not meant to be a realist novel, right? It's like, this isn't the real world. It's yeah. yeah, yeah. But like you were saying, there's a kind yeah. of a physicality to this that you don't, yeah. they don't find in visions of heaven often. That's I guess more what I was thinking. It's like you look across a plane full of dead people mm-hmm. And you see your your ancestor, you know, just sort of right. going about their 
their business. You seek them out, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah even better. Yeah, you seek them out. Yeah. He stood there straining forward, but the scene faded in the gathering darkness. Night descended until there was nothing but a thin streak of red between it and the black line of earth, right? So the sun and earth are finally meeting of earth, but still he stood there. He felt his, ho- his hunger no longer as a pain, but as a tide. He felt it rising in him through time and darkness, rising through the centuries, and he knew that it rose in a line of men whose lives were chosen to sustain it who would wander in the world, strangers from that violent country where the silence is never broken except to shout the truth. He felt it building from the blood of Abel to his own, rising and engulfing him. It seemed in one instance to lift and turn him. He whirled toward the tree line. There, rising and spreading in the night, a red gold tree of fire ascended, as if it would consume the darkness in one tremendous burst of flame. The boy's breath went out to meet it, He knew that this was the fire that had encircled Daniel, that had raised Elijah from the earth, that had spoken to Moses and would in the instant speak to him. He threw himself to the ground and with his face against the dirt of the grave, he heard the command, go warn the children of God of the terrible speed of mercy. The words were as silent as seeds opening one at a time in his blood. Just to reiterate, the speed of mercy is terrible because it feels so alien to the world. It's so, yeah, it, it, like Greg was saying earlier, like the world is so imbued with Satan and evil that the mercy of God is going to seem terrible. It's going to be frightening. Mm-hmm. frightening. I think frightening might be another way of thinking about it. And I think, I think that's right, Paul. And I'm sort of thinking about your, your question about free will. And I think, um, and I'm sort of reading some Martin Buber right now, because O'Connor's reading that in the 50s when she's writing this. And Buber would say God is the supreme thou, right? And if we think, okay, we have this sort of infinite God and we have finite personalities, and, and or we are, we're a finite I, and we're supposed to meet an infinite thou. And it's not just the God of the philosophers where we're just thinking about it, but it's an actual sort of encounter, like a face-to-face encounter, as it were, right? that sort of definitionally is going to be violent. It's going to be jarring, right? The individual meeting the eternal God creator as a thou is just, is going to be like this, right? In a sense, that's what the book is working out. And I do think, Adam, you were right to use the, the phrase God of the philosophers earlier. I mean, that's not what O'Connor's interested in, right? But she's interested in like the actual human encounter with the divine, which if you really believe the defined is infinite, then that encounter has to be strange and overwhelming and scary and terrible. And that's kind of the way the Bible presents it throughout, right? It's something that you almost, in a sense, barely survive, right? God will only show Moses' backside because if he saw his face, he would die, so on and so forth. Well, and I think, I don't know, to bring up more free will stuff, I think the reason Raber is a character is it, it lets her do the genetic lineage stuff, but then also keep free will, right? So, so Raber has 100% the blood of the prophets um, when he acts, right? And he can even prophesy. He knows the future, all kinds of stuff. He hears the voice to, to baptize on Bishop, etc. But Raber, Raber doesn't succeed. And I think that's, that's her revision of the, of the kind of Judaic lineage. I don't know. 
but he, mm. he 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 has to strain constantly to not become that right like that's the madness that he's always worried about overtaking him but that's how he's free though right is he doesn't he he does mm. have the opportunity to not choose that right yeah that's what you're getting Although, at greg uh-huh. i mean one could ask how you know what kind of freedom that is well it's freedom from not freedom to right right i mean it's just that if you're <laughs> to constantly be choosing against something that's always threatening to overwhelm you but i really think that's the definition of, of freedom right and in that case it, it really is in this case raider raver choosing himself right he chooses self-agency he chooses self-authority and so yeah yeah I, mean, again, I guess again we see that there really are there freedom is only two a set of two choices right you just make yeah it's 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 not freedom in any kind of ordinary liberal sense it yeah. literally means choosing god or choosing yourself i was just gonna say that's what the devil says and he's right but, yeah and and i think o'connor i mean i think the novel i mean right the sort of theoretical freedom doesn't exist in a vacuum right none of us are free either in a sort of absolute way we're constrained you know conditioned by our parents by our geography by our dna so on and so forth right and so yeah, that the that absolute freedom doesn't exist, but it's always conditioned by things that come before you and are bigger than you. Even if even even for an atheist, or you know, even if God doesn't oh, exist, sure, that's true. sure, yeah. sure, sure, sure. But I mean, Rapers conceives it almost more like like he is trapped under a burning mm-hmm. couch or something, and like his two choices are to be burned alive or to constantly hold the couch. <laughs> yeah, that's him. right. You know, that's not what I would. You know, that seems like I mean, that's more accurate representation of you know, what our real existential position is I don't know. <laughs> yeah i mean and she's not interested in like liberal like little freedoms right like this is an mm-hmm. absolute freedom mm-hmm. yeah it's the the ultimate choice of life it's not mm-hmm. i'm free to become a teacher or something like that right, you know? right. sure <laughs> well, by the blue toothbrush this week instead of the red toothbrush. yeah yeah <laughs> Well, I'm sort of my favorite kinds of freedoms. Yeah. I'm sort of thinking like um, we've talked a lot about the moral of this book and what the moral is. And I think one thing that is strange about it is that this family is so particular, right? It is really an Old Testament God in the sense that God selected this family to, you know, particularly pay attention to, which they experience in this really traumatic, violent way. Um, And so if you're like, you know, let's imagine you're a a good Baptist in the fifties and you hear about this Christian writer and you pick up this book to learn how to be a better Christian or something, right? There's not something that you can just be like, pull out of this and be like, Oh, that's what I need to do. Right. There's what, what I don't, I mean, it, and it's, what's weird is that she's deeply concerned with morality. She's deeply concerned with theological truth, I think, or I think she's concerned with morality. She's certainly concerned with theological truth. But you get to the end of this and you and there's no feeling like, oh, that's the message. That's what I need to do. That's the application, right? Because everything is so particularistic in a in an Old Testament sort of way. And I think that's kind of what you were thinking about earlier, Adam. And I think this passage is, in, is as indicative of this tendency as anything in the book. I think that's right, Elijah, but I do think there's still she has a like a singular goal of something like attunement to revelation for her readers. Like, I think if you read this book and didn't feel closer to a divine spirit burning away the world, I don't think you read it. Guess I didn't read it. Well, I, I guess I would say that the, 
if the degree there is a message it is like take a yeah spiritual warfare seriously or something right i mean more seriously than consumer technology (laughs) something like that i mean and again that's not a very particular you know it's like that's but i think i think that that is a genuine message for a work of art to try and send right is that there's something higher than the concerns of the truck drivers or even of ray bear you know or meeks or meeks so yeah meeks was like the truck driver or meeks or ray bear i mean i i agree with what you're saying elijah but it's certainly not like a step-by-step guide to becoming you know a christian or something like that but i think it does offer you the very applicable question which is am I choosing myself or am I choosing God? And, you know, like that's something you can ask at any given moment, Mm -hmm. you know? And I mean, yeah, that's not, you know, practical, you know, applicable in the, you know, the easy sense of the word, but it is, it's very real. It's very existential. So it's like that. It's like the Bob Dylan song, right? Got to serve somebody. somebody. (laughs) Uh, No, I I think that's right. But I'm, I'm sort of noting how she, she presents that sort of, I guess we could call it an abstract lesson through a very, very, very concrete, particularistic story. Because mm-hmm. like, if I look at Tarwater, right, my life is nothing like Tarwater's. I don't face the same sort of decisions in a concrete way. But what you're suggesting, I think it has to be right, is that, yes, concretely you don't, but sort of abstractly, whatever decision you are facing, it's, it's you or the devil or you or Jesus, right? I think that's right. It has to be. Uh, that is, I think, uh, maybe there's another way to put this, but but I think I mean, you were saying earlier about how this is like an Old Testament thing, and I think that's really true. Like, so it seems like the New Testament is a really dramatic shift away from something like biographies that need to be analyzed to direct revelation of truths. Like, even though, you know, the gospel is, is basically a biography, it's not a biography in any of the ways of the New Testament prophets. Like Jesus Christ's life is not. Well, Old I don't want to go too far, huh? Old Testament prophets, just to be clear, you said New Testament. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Jesus Christ's life is not like um, like D- David's life is like fundamentally ambiguous and distinctly human, whereas Christ's life is not. Except, you know, I mean that's heresy. Just you know, I mean, though. Um, I like he does I'm, die, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you got it. Um, but but I was basically trying to say something. It's like the the pedagogy of the Old Testament is you read this book about uh, someone whose life is not yours, and that makes you wiser for it, even if they're not a wholly good person, even if they don't even know what goodness is, right? They're just attempting they're a terrible it. person, yeah, or they're yeah. a terrible person, right? And you like read their life, and you gain from that. The New Testament model feels something like, I'm going to tell you what's good, and you enact that, right? And this feels much more like the previous than the latter. Well, it's sort of in the hour in the Auerbach model, right? The way Abraham or Moses or Elijah or whoever experiences God is that there's this big dark sky, and then you just see these sort of flashes of lightning that break through for a moment. Right. And then you get to Christ and and there's this moment where like it's like full daylight. Right. And Jesus uses this metaphor. Right. Now is daylight. Night is coming. And then O'Connor, again, like I really insist on reading her as a as a product of her time as well. 
right? She's writing in the 50s. Uh, she's a, she's writing as a modern person and she's thinking about the death of God. And like, you know, if I were to sort of abstract maybe the hypothesis of this book, it's something like after the death of God, people seeking God in the modern age experience it more like the Old Testament fathers did <laughs> than, than those in the time of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. It's these flashes of lightning and the mystery, you know, the mystery is emphasized rather than the, rather yeah. than the, uh, plain daylight of of the incarnation or something it is really strange though right because it's like maybe o'connor would disagree with this sorry the what is strange to me is the reversion back to old testament ways of teaching writing thinking etc because i mean first of all it seems like in christianity the new testament is the point first of all like maybe i'm wrong about that but it seems there's something crucial that happens there that makes Christianity possible. Judaism is no longer sufficient or whatever. Mm. Also, you know, if this is some sort of attack on enlightenment ways of thinking, individualistic ways of thinking, autonomy, etc., it's I'm not the only person to make the claim that Christianity is is part and parcel to that enlightenment movement. And I mean, there's all sorts of different ways we could dispute that. But it does, it feels to me like she's kind of backing away from that, that criticism, which she had to have been aware of, right? I mean, that's not, that's not a unique claim. It's not a contemporary claim, at least like, and contemporary, I mean, like in the last 40 or 50 years, like she yeah. had to have been aware. Yeah, of that's what I was saying earlier, that you're getting a really, to me, a really, something like an attempt, or, well, I don't know. Well, I guess one way to think about it is that, yeah, it's an attempt to to update or to redo or to rethink the trajectory of Christianity and like burn out the parts that became entangled with the enlightenment. Right? Yeah. But it, I mean, I don't know what's left then. <laughs> then you're just left with a very dark inscrutable God who appears like flashes of lightning. And Well, and to address Paul's comment, and I think it's helpful because I think I, for my part, might've missed or gone too far in thinking about the old Testament God, because we also need to remember that the two symbols in this book, right, are baptism and Eucharist, right? Those are the sort of central pillars of this book. And those are obviously deeply Christo, Christocentric sacraments or, or something. And I mean, of course, like a question from the beginning of Christianity, right? It's like something like fire. Some kind of fire has to be the, the primary uh -huh. symbol too, or some sort of fire. Yeah, that's true. Fire and eyes, fishes and loaves. But communion is eucharist is very central and baptism is absolutely central yeah, for sure baptism is the central one for sure. um but i think so right a question from the beginning of christianity has been how to how does christianity how does this new dispensation relate to the old one right and the gnostics would say the jewish god has nothing to do with with jesus they're totally different and o'connor i think in her religious imagination and i mean like she's as far as i you know i've read most of her letters most of her essays as far as I know, she's concerned with doctrine. She's like, I'm a Catholic. I'm not going to violate doctrine. But beyond that, I'm going to kind of let my religious imagination go wild and, and see what it finds, you know. And she was kind of okay with that. So she's not, I don't, I don't think she's consciously heretical, but she's not towing the doctrinal line either. She sort of sees it as a fence. She can, doesn't want to mm -hmm. well, transgress. Yeah. And I, and I, mean, I think maybe you do, you don't get the sense that there's like a, she's allowing in a, in a Freudian maybe in a Freudian type of way, just like the subconscious to play more strongly and the 
in part three and just see what kind of symbolic association could get dragged up uh-huh. by because that, I mean, I think that's kind of what Greg was getting at as well. It, it, maybe this is not true, but it certainly reads like it was written much more automatic writing, sort yeah, of thing, or something much more quickly and much less obsessed over and re edited and yeah. re edited and re edited. Well, you know, and apparently, I mean, what, what O'Connor says is she read 15 minutes of St. Thomas before she went to bed each night. Her God does not, her God does not feel her the way she imagines God feels much more irrational than Thomas's God, as I imagine. Does not feel Thomistic. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> does not I'm feel Thomistic, really. But I mean, I th- so all of the whole point I was going to say, and then let's talk about the Freud thing. But the point I wanted to make is that um, her religious imagination, as expressed through her fiction, is uh, she really does. I think she emphasizes the Hebraicness of the Christian God, um, even though she obviously thinks Christ is very important, too. Well, I think she, two, one more, sorry, let me get this thought out. I think she emphasizes the Hebraicness of the Hebrew God, and I think she emphasizes the idea of scandal in the New Testament, right? Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended or scandalized by me. And the, the almost like Kierkegaardian idea of like, there's only two reactions to Christ, right? If you mm-hmm. understand it correctly, you're either, you can accept it with the help of the helper, even though it goes against reason, right? Because in it, in the 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 reason it's the the reason it's the fundamental paradox, right, is because the infinite and the finite became one in the incarnation, right? It goes against the the law of non-contradiction, right? The very base of human reason. So for Kierkegaard, you either accept it or you're totally offended by it. There's no in between. And I think sort of the Hebraic God and the scandal are the two pieces that really capture O'Connor O'Connor's imagination. Sorry for the diatribe. <laughs> well, that's helpful i i could not imagine her as someone who even reads thomas so i still <laughs> i still don't know what to do with that but that's very interesting uh let's let's read the last the last paragraph we didn't we didn't finish so i'm gonna read the last paragraph but in the paragraph before the last paragraph i think the last two right we yeah let's just read the last two i guess so when finally he raised himself the burning bush had disappeared a line of fire ate languidly at the tree line, and here and there a thin crest of flame rose farther back in the woods where a dull red cloud of smoke had gathered. The boy stooped and picked up a handful of dirt off his great uncle's grave and smeared it on his forehead. Then after a moment, without looking back, he moved across the far field and off the way Buford had gone. By midnight he had left the road and the burning woods behind him and he had come out on the highway once more. The moon riding low above the field beside him appeared and disappeared, diamond bright, between patches of darkness. Intermittently, the boy's jagged shadow slanted across the road ahead of him as it cleared a rough path toward his goal. His singed eyes, black in their deep sockets, seemed already to envision the fate that awaited him, but he moved steadily on, his face set toward the dark city where the children of God lay sleeping. One thing I would I know just reading it just now is that he's being led as if he's being led by his shadow. Intermittently, the boy's jagged shadow slanted across the road ahead of him as if it cleared a rough path toward his goal. I think his shadow is like a machete or something that's it's clearing the way in the jungle. <laughs> he's also chasing the the what's the the Jesus guy? How's that exact description? He's chasing what? It's it's like he's chasing Jesus again, right? The in the distance because the shadows 
way in front of him, right? So it's this like mm-hmm. distorted, darkened thing. Um, but now it's his own shadow that's like Christ, not just a raggedy mm-hmm. yeah. Christ on the on the at the edge of his view. Mad, mad stinking Jesus. You mean? That's it. The mad stinking that's, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. But his shadow would lead him right because the light, whether it's the moon or sun, is is behind him, right? So, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is God, right? In some yeah. way. The bleed, bleeding, stinking, mad shadow of Jesus. That's it. That's it. The, the mad shadow of Jesus, right? Yeah. That's become his now. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I didn't make that connection. What is that? What is that from? That's page 221. I'll, it's I'll like read. a motif. It happens like three times, right? Yeah. Again, I guess yeah, I just wanted to point out the shadows play an important, a very important role in the and you know. Obviously, the light casts shadows, but but the shadows seem to be where the action is in this book. This this is this is before he meets the stranger, or physically meets the stranger. So he's returning to part to Powderhead, tried in the fire of his refusal, with all the old man's fancies burnt out of him, with all the old man's madness smothered for good, so that there was never any chance it would break out in him. He had saved himself forever from the fate he being a mason had envisioned when standing in the school teacher's hall and looking into the eyes of the dim-witted child i guess it's tar water there he had seen himself trudging off into the distance in the bleeding stinking mad shadow of jesus lost forever to his own inclinations so we have the idea of autonomy uh, brought up there so, again, yeah I so think. it's like enacts the he enacts the vision right at the end yeah that is good yeah. well if there's no thoughts on these final two paragraphs specifically maybe we should sort of for the next like 10 minutes or so sort of do some freewheeling off the cuff we've done our due diligence of like paul think, thinking carefully did, paul's probably been holding back a little like, bit did you like this book but let's <laughs> let's do sort of a couple minutes of sort of evaluation freewheeling big conversation again and then yeah and then we'll wrap it up i already i already adduced the theory involving greek mythology the enlightenment the old testament and the new testament think bigger adam think bigger (laughs) i think well and you can edit this out in the recording if you want but i feel like we always after we sort of say good night we then sort of have some really interesting sort of more candid conversation i think we should try to do that now and 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 push back the part where we sort of try to be too professional here or something or too detached so uh anyway i mean the thing i've been reading way too much nietzsche lately and so i just the thing i kept coming back to is just this reads like a book who is that is written by someone who is just through and through world weary and she just occupies the most awful awful world and doesn't seem anything redeemable in it only redeemable the only thing that can redeem it is something that is completely apart from it in this like old testament god kind of way yeah and i just i mean you know like at the at the end of the day it comes back to first principles and i you can't argue for them and but i think nietzsche is really on to something where when you hold that the universe works like this and there is this god out there that is inscrutable that is our only saving grace that is the only thing that can redeem the fallen satan riddled world 
you're going to have a miserable life. Like I just, I feel like that's, that's a very unhappy way of understanding the world when you don't understand itself, basic material stuff as being holding the redemption within it. I mean, which is to say that it doesn't need to be redeemed. Right. Right. Uh, uh, It's not fallen in the first place, but again, like, you know, (laughs) I'm not going to say anything profound or new. That's going to correct these arguments. You know, Christians and atheists are going to go back and forth until we're blue in the face, but I do think it, it ended up reaffirming my prejudices, I guess. <laughs> this is a very sad, sad, world-weary Christian. I'm interested in this idea that the only choice is between, between Jesus and you. And to choose yourself is to choose Satan. Because that's another way, I mean, that's another way of saying the choice is between, I think, between the incomprehensible and the comprehensible, right? And I wonder if that isn't, too extreme even though i think that any way of conceptualizing the christian god or any properly divine kind of being would involve a lot of a lot of incomprehensibility i wonder if it has to be so stark well the reason the reason satan is the stranger is comprehensible i mean maybe we could find some Thomism here in o'connor right um the reason the stranger is comprehensible is is privation of being right because really the choice is, do you, do you feed on God who is plentiful and lacks nothing, or does Satan feed on you? That's another way of, of, of presenting the dichotomy. And, and what the stranger and Tarwater have in common is that they're both hungry, right? Mm-hmm. And Tarwater is, is what the devil wants to feed on. That's, I mean, the language is really clear there. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the privation of evil is, is probably throughout this book. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think it- yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like that by the killing of Bishop, strengthened the stranger. Well, now there was one. Or, go ahead. Feed on tar water, then, right? Like you said. Well, there's a moment I, I want to just point out that I've been thinking about a lot and being brought up. Oh, it's it's two fourteen, right? The boy looked up into his friend's eyes as the stranger bent upon him and was startled to see that in the peculiar darkness they were violet colored, very close and intense and fixed on him with a peculiar look of hunger and attraction. He turned his head away, unsettled by their attention, right? So there's previewing, right? And then later it says, uh, the stranger comes out of the wood looking refreshed from from the blood, as if he had had the blood of tar water or something. But I was going to say also, Adam, in response to what you were saying, I mean, implicit in there is a claim that uh, there is no autonomy. There's just a question of who are you going to serve? Right, which I think is a pretty traditional sort of Christian notion, albeit presented in a grotesque way in this book. I was trying to think that this book is not, this book is so sexless for most of the, you know what I mean? Mm. Part of what's like shocking, I think about this, when you finally read the scene is that it's just a very unerotic world. And, you know, and it's in the sense that it's just, yeah, like I think I said this last time, but it's, it's not a, it's not a sensual world. Right. And, I th- well, and I, I think that doesn't Tarwater even think of his, the land of Christianity as like a gray land several times, the gray world. Silent country, yeah. gray country, and uh, B- Bishop's eyes are gray, right? Right. And the stranger's eyes and Satan's eyes are kind of violet. Mm-hmm. He has the pink, pink hue in his blood, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, even sex is only hunger. Right. Mm-hmm. Or sex only occurs out of out of a deeper hunger. 
like the the sexual capacity is merely a lack and then it's just enacted upon it as an attempt to to fix the lack not it's almost like classical in that sense whereas Mm. rather than something like i feel like psychology expresses it differently where it's like a a rising up or an agency yeah right that's right it's very anti-psychological also in that sense yeah desire is never an expression of a plenitude or a surplus or something it's always an expression of lack i mean you know we talked about i i feel like another theological paradox is it always turns around the problem of evil you know and one kind of solution to that is to say that evil is the privation of good and only good really exists you know and evil is a lack of evils you know, just lacks being i guess i just don't know that i understand what that means actually comes down to it <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've heard it. I've read it. I've thought about it, but I don't know if I could really, if I could really uh, grasp it. I don't know. I mean, that the privation of evil argument has to be teleological, right? Like, sex, sex was designed for procreation and to express love, right? When you take that and you you rape somebody, you are using it for what it was not intended for, and therefore diminishing it, right? And so, you, all you're doing is subtracting from what it ought to be. I mean, that's, it has to be, if there's no telos, that doesn't make sense, right? And what it's saying is that when you use something for other than its intended purpose, you are diminishing it somehow. No, no. Yeah. Was that, I understand I that know, part of it. I just don't know that it, it doesn't solve the problem to me, I guess. Uh-huh. This is a, this is a well, well, conversation and it's a conversation <laughs> that we've had probably thousands of times, but I, you know, uh-huh. you know, Connor really forces you to confront these. I don't, you know, obviously you are very much intended whether you're a Christian or, or not, when, to really think about, you know, these sort of pr- fundamental paradoxes of the Christian theology when you read this, right? Uh-huh. Seems to me, I, mean, I don't know how you can, how, you know, I mean, how, how is it possible that, that what happens to tar water is what God wants to happen to one of his children? Yeah, that's a good question. Right, and, and O'Connor is a, a realist in the sense that she's a realist in the sense that this sort of stuff does happen. So if you're going to be theologically serious, and I would say the same about Dostoevsky, right? If you're going to be theologically serious, you have to think about these extreme cases and and try to understand, (laughs) right, what mercy could possibly look like in these. Because like sticking, I mean, you know, sticking your head in the sand is not a sufficient... No, no. I I mean, it's not... I wasn't as a criticism of the book. No, 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 no. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sort of trying to think about why I think... I mean, yeah, that's... A, she seems drawn to extreme cases for precisely the sort of questions you're asking about it. It's like, if it doesn't make sense here, it doesn't make sense at all. I guess, again, you know, it's like I'm, I'm thinking of this in terms of my experience... In terms of my experience growing up being a uh, skeptical, you know, young person growing up in the church or whatever. And you, you know, the answer to that kind of question always ends up being you know, the Lord moves in mysterious ways or something, which is, it ca- carries a kind of echo of a more sophisticated theolo- or teleological argument in the background, right? Mm-hmm. And I wonder ultimately what this book adds to that if it isn't just another way of saying that. Right. I think by particularizing it, it it gives it a certain weightiness that the, you know, the hand waviness of saying that, you know, universally doesn't, can't, it shows conviction too. It's like, no, even in the worst situation, yeah, <laughs> the yeah. Lord moves in mysterious ways. Yeah. 
Well, and O'Connor takes the suffering of both Raver and Tarwater seriously, right? She doesn't hand wave it away either. And I think that counts for something. <laughs> or, or, or it shows something like integrity, I guess. Is And I think that's what Paul was just getting at. Uh, I know Paul and Elijah and I all were raised in Christian households and Christian environments. Um, I don't think you were not, Greg. Is that true? No. Yeah, it's weird. So I grew up not Christian. I'm like a very world-weary atheist, though. This book has like tremendous emotional sense to me. Like it, it feels like a ludicrously natural way of thinking, even if I don't agree theologically with its arguments or something. I don't know what to say about that. To, to me, also being sick, this world re- really resonates with the feeling of being sick for a long time. Right, which O'Connor, right? She died like three years after this is published, after years and years of having lupus. Yeah. Which I, I mean, I don't want to like psychologize her too much. Like, <laughs> we evaluate no. the book on its own merits, but she was very sick. Is a is a not being able to eat or hold food down part of lupus? Is that ever? Oh, I'm sure not. I mean, she was on all sorts of medications. Na- nausea. Nausea. I'm sure. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing about being sick, right? Is like the whole world is tinged with sickness once you're mm-hmm. sick you can't you can't escape it that's why health is the first good that's right aristotle we'll get there yeah we're reading aristotle in two weeks listeners did i ever send you guys that essay about uh, reading the metamorphosis the kafka story as a metaphor for illness i don't think so like the ideas gregor wakes up one day and he has like ms or something just like sudden onset ms and the way that it like transforms everything his relationship to his family all of a sudden he's just like a burden and they they don't know how to deal with him they don't understand him and they they like sort of pity him they sort of hate him you know that made a lot of sense yeah i certainly don't want to psychologize that aspect but i do think that there's something of that here well, I was going to say in, in, in response to what both Paul and Greg were saying about the world weariness, I, I see that in one, I see that, I can certainly see that in some respect. I think what she's doing here that I, that I find interesting is that she is sort of rejecting, I, the, I read her, and maybe this is because I've read, you know, most of her work, I read her as doing something anti-Gnostic in the sense of the Gnostic move is material is bad, spirit is good. And I th- and I and I think that certain forms of fundamentalist Christianity, for all intents and purposes, like I'm talking about in the 19th and 20th century, become sort of Gnostic in that sense. Um, and I see her doing something more interesting, where she's saying, "No, like whatever we know of God is expressed through the material world, and the world is sort of shot through with the presence of God in some." The world is sort of shot through with the spiritual in some way that they're inextricable. Certainly, her the world is presented in this novel is is grim, but I think I do think she's not trying to escape matter, but she's thinking of it in a more sacramental way that that doesn't see this artificial division that sort of characterizes modern thinking. Yeah, but I, I don't I, know. Maybe I'm giving no, her too much credit. No, 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 no. I wouldn't say that at all. I think you're totally right. I think it. I think. Almost though, the thing I want to add is like what I mean by world weariness is almost more like that. Like I've never, I mean, I guess sometimes I've toyed with the idea that like matter is like truly worthless, but um, 
it really feels like uh, like I, I, mean, I think maybe when there's like there's a certain joy to vomiting that can occur over time where, where it's just like yeah. after you've done it so much it's it's a relief and there and it has like a certain kind of I don't know how to put it, but it, but it, it, it just has this like, oh, like it's, it's effused with some it's kind of to get it out of you. Well, no, but it has something to do with smell even like um, it, it starts to, it starts to, to have the, uh, yeah, just the smell of relief or something. And I think that that is, is to me almost like the, or mm. a, a, a world awareness of a very different kind than, than simple, negationism and i think that's what suffuses o'connor and i think that that's not even incompatible like like i maybe never to separate separating out world weariness from world hatred i feel like that's something that i don't it feels ridiculous to try to read this book in a non-christian lens but if you really were trying to read this book in a non-christian lens that's something you could get out of it until next week yeah, any other thoughts yeah, before we close? joy of vomiting. <laughs> end, end on that note. Uh-huh. I do. It's like, we don't. Every once in a while, you get like food poisoning or something. You get, they get the fever and like you, you sweat and you vomit, you know, and you shit. And it's like a kind of, it's like a rebirth or something to it. It's like you get all the. No, but that's like the feeling of it getting better. I'm talking about like the feeling like this is going to kill me and that's okay. Uh, interesting. Okay. No, like, it's like giving up on health, like losing that idea. It's like when you give up on the idea of health, mom, it takes on a new that, Yeah. And that's why it's a weariness. It's like a proper loss. Like I, I won't be healthy again. And it feels like that really infuses her writing that kind of like very, very wide knowledge that she can never be healthy. So you got you you kind of read it and you sort of see the the you sort of see this similar sort of Nietzschean thing that Paul does, but you can sort of identify with it more or something. Yeah, I identify with it immediately. Like it's it to me to me this book is like profoundly emotionally intuitive, profoundly the way I it's the way I think, but not the way I I verbalize, and that's that's the uh, I've like spent my life completely rewriting my verbal structures, but but the but the emotional sense of this book is second nature to me. Huh? So you, you, so you enjoyed it. Oh yeah. Immensely. <laughs> Interesting. Like an old friend. That you might be in a line of prophets, Greg. Do <laughs> <laughs> no. you have the blood of prophets? But that's what I, exactly what I mean. Like, I don't need to use that language, but I mm-hmm. feel the way no. they feel. Like, I don't, I don't use the word prophet, but that, that sense I don't know. I've gotten much better too. Like my health has improved immensely. So it's like a world I'm stepping further back from, which is why it's now just an old friend rather than something that's literally true. (laughs) That's good. It would be uh, really interesting. Yeah. To read this next to the portrait of the artist, right? It's like uh, two versions of the development of someone born to be a truth telling outsider. Right. Who's, who's like born to wander alone in the world and be looked, they sort of be looked down upon and be hated and be, uh, but maybe to be right in the end. Well, I told you that I saw somewhere in the scholarship a comment that Wiseblood they thought of as a satire to Portrait of the Artist. 
Oh, that's right. You did say that. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Which there is a sort of sense there, which is, yeah. Anyway. All mm. right. We've, we've dallied. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unless there's anything pressing I have to teach tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Quixotic Quest for the Keto Mythologies. Next week, we'll be reading Little Man at Chiha Station by Ralph Ellison. Uh, to sort of in, yeah, increase our literary criticism chops as a group of philosophers trying to read literature. Um, and then after that, on to Aristotle. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.